Welcome to the Vegas Gang Podcast for September 18th, 2008. Uh, we took last week off, but we're back, and there's quite a bit to talk about, so let's get started. Uh, I'd like to welcome back my regular panel, David McKee from the Las Vegas Advisor. Hey, David. Hello. Chuck Monster from VegasTripping.com. Hey, Chuck. Hello. <laughs> Dave Schwartz from UNLV's Center for Gaming Research. Good afternoon, Dave. Hey, now. Jeff Stimson from the Las Vegas Sun and In Business Las Vegas. Welcome, Jeff. Buenos dias. Uh, hola, my name is Hunter, and I run RateVegas.com. Um, we've got quite a few things. Uh, several of them revolve around the growing economic crisis in the United States. And personally, I am a little bit sick of the doom and gloom stories that dominate the media. But at the same time, uh, there are some important issues in there. So I think we're going to try um, bunching up a couple of the uh, bad economic news items up into one discussion topic. And uh, and then even if we only talk about that for a minute, minute or two before we move on, that's okay. But just so that we get some of this stuff out there because it is uh, important to at least note and definitely some of it is uh, – very Vegas, Vegas-centric. So some of the sour economic news stories that are Las Vegas-related in, in the last couple weeks include – I'm just going to rattle some off, and then we'll talk about them. Um, Harris Stadium deal. There was uh, – Harris is – they were previously announced plans to build a stadium behind Valleys in Paris, with Harris was going to be, I believe, the principal joint venture partner. And the word is that they are pulling out of that, uh, pulling out of that deal – which um, you know may suggest that they're not able to. Um, Sheldon Adelson, once the world's you know third richest man or whatever, U.S.'s third richest man somewhere up there, he has shot way down the list. I think he's number uh, he's uh, in the poorhouse number 15. I think now. Um, so he's he's lost a lot of paper value for his Las Vegas sand stock. Um, we've got IGT announcing some layoffs. They're the large gaming manufacturer. Um, I think David brought this to brought to my attention that one of the articles mentions uh, potential reason that they have expanded too far into server-based gaming, which I just think is incredibly funny because that's like the perennial coming next year uh, feature every single year at G2E. It's server-based gaming is going to be <laughs> next year. It's coming seriously. <laughs> and so if they're expanding too rapidly into that, I don't know where they're deploying these things except for like one bank of machines at Treasure Island. But uh, apparently they're investing too much money into server-based gaming. So all of this stuff above, and then we have stories about traffic levels in Macau being down. It, you know, it, it sounds like uh, Vegas is hurting just like everybody else is. Um, as far as you guys that cover the industry – how do you find the mood with the executives and the workers and the people that you're talking to? Maybe Jeff Simpson, I'll start with you. Well, I think that people are just, you know, it's, it, I don't think that um, typically these national or international cataclysms take a while to filter down to what it means to Las Vegas. Um, in the days after 9-11, I remember, you know, you had MGM Mirage making a big contribution to the New York City United Way. Um, you had all these folks sort of thinking about, you know, the the world at large and the nation at large, not really thinking, you know, wow, what will uh, a decline in air travel and, and uh, you know, what's this going to mean for Las Vegas? And then after a week or so, it's sort of, you know, people sort of come to grips with, 
how the big picture affects our smaller picture. And I think we're still in that situation right now in that transition where people are are not really sure yet what the impact will be. Um, I think that if um, people face um, severely depleted 401ks, if you see a shakeout in Wall Street start affecting Main Street with people, um, you know, rapid with spiking unemployment rates um, and, you know, credit tightening even more than it has been, which is hard to believe, if those things happen, um, certainly it will have an impact here, um, a very negative impact. Um, but that has not happened yet. I think that there is there is a sense of uh, worry, um, and I think that you know the fact that it's overlaid with this you know home stretch of a presidential campaign makes it sort of surreal. But um, I think there are a lot of folks who are keeping their fingers crossed that um, a very ineffective president will figure out how to solve a crisis um, like this. I don't think there's a lot of confidence in what, in what he's done so far. But I don't think you see people, you know, certainly there's nobody jumping out of windows yet. Um, and, and so I would say that um, we have yet to get to the place where Las Vegas executives have a good grasp of what this latest economic turbulence means. I think they had completely come to terms with sort of the economic downturn that we've had for the last eight months to a year but they have yet to come to grips with this latest cataclysm, which is, you know, I think most folks would agree is probably the the second or worst, um, you know, financial uh, week um, in U.S. history since the uh, since the um, you know the Great Crash in '29 and the following depression. So it's uh, you know pretty big news, and I just don't think people have come to grips with what it means yet. Yeah, well, um, it's interesting to hear you say that, and I, I, it does seem like an atomic bomb has sort of gone off in the financial sector, and it, it is sort of stunning just to see things sort of unravel on top of each other. Um, and there I'll, isn't I'll, much. Of, one thing you can say, Hunter, is that there isn't as much of an impact on the casino business itself. The companies that have been affected so far on Wall Street are not huge players in the casino business. Um, not they don't provide you know a very significant amount of lines of credit or the debt that these casino companies have. Um, there is you know there's incidental um, relatively small participation from Lehman and some of the other um, companies involved, but nothing, uh, and, and a few of these companies use AIG as an insurance company. I don't think that's going to have much of an effect at all. I think the, the, the macro effect on the economy is what is what's really um, worrisome more than, you know, sort of companies that have deals with these uh, failing or failed, um, you know, investment banks. Yeah, I think it also shows some of the strengths of the gaming industry, um, most of which is the transparency, you know, where there's because of the regulation being so heavy, we have a lot much better idea of what they're doing than you do with a lot of these, these other companies. So I think, if anything, it shows how strong the industry is. It's a good point, actually. You can you can see a reconstituted financial industry taking its cues from the gaming industry in terms of its of terms of new regulation. <laughs> well, it's tough to make it's tough to make you know the financial businesses. I mean, their their um, risk factors so much more complicated. I mean, you know, the gaming business is a relatively simple business. Um, you know what 
what investment banks do with, you know, between derivatives and investing in mortgage-backed securities and and uh, re rebundling, repackaging debt. Um, you know, there are it is such a such a complicated um, business that it's very difficult for regulators to sort of you know take a you know a peek. Um, underneath the uh, the covers and figure out what's actually going on there. I think um, you're right. It, it's it's a good thing for Las Vegas to have a relatively simple, um, relatively uh, visible kind of business um, as opposed to what they're going through on Wall Street right now. Yeah, and I kind of argue that this this whole thing is going to cause a backlash against people investing a lot of their money and say, hey, if these geniuses can't run any company right i might as well just take it down and you know put it on the pass line and, and take there it. you go that's 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 kind of my one of my theories <laughs> well hey you would have done better and you could have gotten free drinks while you were doing it which is better than anyone got <laughs> and a free room free room free dinner yeah. jeff i i have a, a question for you. i know a lot of the folks who listen to uh, this podcast are investors in the gaming biz uh, if they were curious to to know what the potential impact might be to the gaming companies, what companies in the financial sector do you think they should be keeping their eyes on uh, for potential collapses or buyouts or uh, crashing? Well, the companies that 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 provide a lot of the the money to build properties um you know some of those um you know deutsche bank uh, uh there's a bank a bank of nova scotia um and uh there's you know there's a few of the the very big ones bank of america has gotten a lot more involved in the last few years and there's you know david probably uh, has as good of an idea as as i do if not better but there are there are some of those um banks that you know none of those have been mentioned in any way um, negatively, um, but I think that uh, you know the, 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 those who have, are invested in gaming, um, you know, they probably should be focused on you know the business, the business fundamentals. It's not so much you know if a, if a company is is running well and they were to lose access to um, a line of credit, let's say a rolling line of credit offered by a um, defunct investment bank. If they're still a good company, and if there is credit to be had, they can probably go out and get it get it from somebody else. So I don't think that that it's any that that element is something for gaming investors to be too worried about. Um, it may reprice higher, but um, the big problem is going to be the the overall economy i think um and what it means for the fundamentals of the business um you know you hunter mentioned in the uh, run-up to this conversation about you know there the first half of september saw um flat performance in macau you know flat in macau is like down 20 percent in las vegas um i think there's a built-in expectation for uh you know at least 25 percent month over year over year um, performance there, and so when it's flat, that is a uh, very negative result. Um, but if these, if the, uh, if the national economy, if these big institutional banking problems um, turn into a a quick shrinking of the national economy, and you know 
move us clearly into a recession, which economists have been reluctant to say nationwide, um, if that happens, that will have a, demo, uh, you know, a demonstrable impact on the gaming business here and elsewhere. Well, um, you know, definitely uh, a lot of people are watching this stuff. I think I want to leave the financial stuff there for now. We've got a bunch of other topics um, and, you know, we'll obviously keep track of this stuff in future shows as, as things progress. And hopefully one of these days we'll have some good stories to tell. But right now I want to do a little update, a uh, quick update on Kansas. Um, I believe uh, the second round of licenses are being handed down tomorrow. And uh, I'm going to ask David McKee to give us a quick update on that process. I think there's been some activity in the last uh, few days. Yeah, well, there's uh, uh, two licenses still to be handed out, one in the, the Dodge City area. It's just a couple of of small-time – well, a, a company with, with relatively little experience and a company with no experience in a $50 million casino. And so that's that's a, just kind of a sideshow. But the big, uh, the big prize is uh, the Kansas City area. And um, fans and just this week, Pinnacle, have walked away from that, but that still leaves three major players, Mohegan Sun and uh, Cordish Companies using the the Hard Rock brand, and uh, Golden Gaming. so they're, uh, the, uh, those are the we're, we're looking at projects in the budget range of about 660 to oh 770 million. Uh, the I'm I'm sticking by my prediction. Of course, by the time this podcast is up and available, we'll know whether I'm wrong or not. I'm still sticking with my prediction that the Mohegan Sun will. Uh, walk away with this one uh, in large part because of their track record. Also, they're, um, now that Sands is out of the picture, they're putting the largest amount of money on the table, and they also are offering the, the widest range of amenities, including um, a golf course and condos uh, and tennis courts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas the other two bidders offer some, they're they're they offer a variant that's that could be summed up as as more gambling and fewer or smaller amenities. How would you handicap those three? I know you you say Mohegan. Um, the likeliest. Um, I mean, if you were setting odds on Mohegan, Cordish, Hard Rock, and Golden, um, how would you assess the uh, all three of their chances? Um, you know, let's say out of out of a hundred, which, which, which what, how would you assess their chances of winning? Oh, I'm no good at odds making. Um, I'd say that it. I can tell you that that kind of prediction can get you sued. But go ahead. Hmm. What kind of prediction? I, I did that in Singapore. Not only was I dead wrong, it resulted in a lawsuit. But oh, what from have at it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I think that you know, I think that Cordish may have a have a strong chance, partly because their their project is piggybacked onto the Kansas Speedway. Uh, Golden, I'm I'm very skeptical about, and I've had some back and forth with the company about this because. They've never done anything remotely on this scale, 
And, you know, we're talking about uh, a $660 million investment for a company that, uh, you know, their main claim to fame is uh, PT's Pubs. So there's there's the operational, I mean, operationally and in terms of, of building on this scale, uh, Mohegan Sun clearly has an adva- historical advantage. Also, the, the lottery board, when they were choosing uh, choosing candidates for the Wichita area, the thing that they liked about Harrah's was a the size of the investment and b the the range of amenities that Harris was putting on the table so if we apply those two criterion you have to you have to lean in mohegan sun's direction i mean i think that because cordish has has such a long and distinguished track record as a developer that gives them uh you know i i i guess i would look at them as the dark horse candidate but i mean you could knock me over a, with a feather if if golden lands this because they just you know there's really not anything and i don't mean this is a disrespect to the the company because they run a lot of nice properties here in in nevada but i mean nothing remotely on this scale so and also their timeline is uh is the the longest of of anybody's for getting the thing open. So I think that there there are a number of things which which I would expect. Um, you know, going on what's happened so far, I would expect the uh, the Kansas uh, Lottery Board to to. Um, I mean, let's put it this way: they they definitely be uh, they they definitely be making a bold play if they went with Golden. Um, so that's, I mean, that's how, that's how I see it coming down. Um, and then the other thing that was in the new Pinnacle uh, walked away this week and was probably uh, a good move on their part because they've already got $400 million sunk into Atlantic City with, and they they have really no idea of when they're going to put a shovel in the ground there. Uh, They've got storm damage at their their Louisiana uh, properties that that insurance isn't going to cover, and they've uh, by their own admission they overspent on Lumiere Place in St. Louis, and the results there haven't been been spectacular. I mean, I don't think it's keeping uh, either the Harris or the Ameristar property executives in that area up nights. The amount of, of business that that Pinnacle is doing in that market. And they've still got they've got commitments in Baton Rouge. They've got a big project in the the Greater St. Louis market. So they've got so many irons in the fire. Uh, it's uh, I mean I would have been been really surprised if if they could have could have added this into their uh, their already backlogged pipeline. And then uh, Penn National after a lot of sulking and pouting and just sort of generally petulant behavior made it official and said they weren't going to to build the Cherokee County Casino, for which they were the only contestant. I mean, some of their reasons were were quite valid, one of which was that uh, that they were being asked to invest $225 million, while the casino out in Dodge City is only required to be a $50 million project. Also, the lottery board had halved its estimate for the amount of, of slot revenues that the casino in that southeast corner of the state could rake in. 
But at the same time, you know, Penn's uh, its its demand that uh, uh, that it be allowed to cut back its level of investment by seventy five percent came awfully late in the day. I mean, they say the tribal casino, which which kind of put the fear of God into them once it opened. Uh, I mean, it's you know a three hundred million dollar casino, which is what that is. It doesn't appear overnight, especially if it's right across the road from where you're planning to build. So it, it Penn acted as though this thing, had they woke up one morning and went, whoa. Um, and, um, you know, and then, and, uh, then made, you know, and it, it didn't become an issue for them until so late in the process that it does give ammunition to those of their critics who said that, well, they didn't want to go through with it anyway, so now they're just looking for any excuse that they can get to to uh, wriggle out of that commitment. I mean, it's sort of – I don't think you could find get, – you'd get much of an argument if you said that, uh, you know, the Pens their goal was the Wichita market, and without that, they just – didn't consider it worth the, uh, you know, worth rolling the dice. Well, uh, thank you, David, for that update. Uh, we will. Uh, you're probably right that the podcast will not be posted until after these announcements are made. So, uh, we'll so I may be wearing a dunce cap by the we'll time that that you guys in in what we used to call Radio Land hear this. <laughs> exactly. Well, we shall see. You very well may be right. The um, next story is maybe sort of related to the economy, but it's sort of a, a new spin. And um, the question is this. Do challenging economic times mean that some longstanding bits of regulation may, might have a shot at being changed? And specifically, I'm talking about the idea of putting strip clubs in strip resorts. That's little case S and then uppercase S. Um, Jeff, I think you were doing a piece on this. Is that right? Can you talk? About I, I had a, a column in, in business uh, that ran um, this last week on, uh, and I'm predicting that strip clubs will soon uh, be in Las Vegas casinos. I would separate the two issues. I, I, my opinion is that it's unrelated to the economy or the direction of the economy, but certainly money is in almost all issues in the casino. Is at the center. Um, the casino operators have long wanted the dollars that leave their property every night and uh, go into the uh, G-strings of girls named Bunny or Trixie or Diamond. Um, and, you know, they, they, they hate the fact that there are hundreds and thousands of bucks uh, that individual client, you know, customers are taking, taken away uh, and given to strippers. And so they have long tried to figure out a way to keep that money on property. Um, they've tried uh, um, to have sexier shows, you know, topless shows that are even, you know, more, you know, less like the classic shows. Um, like Follies, Berger, Jubilee, and and more like um, the kind of shows you'll see at Luxor and Stratosphere, and and uh, those just don't attract single guys. They attract couples, and uh, um, and they just aren't. They don't uh, do. They don't serve the same purpose. Um, they've tried to, uh, um, you know, they've beefed up their nightclub lineup, but that's also more of a. Uh, you know, meeting people kind of thing. It, it, you know, they're very popular, and that business has 
hurt the traditional entertainment offerings, but um, that that really has not worked. And uh, you know, a couple, one casino in particular, Mandalay, has a burlesque venue, um, Ivan Kane's Forty Deuce, um, where there is stripping, but it's uh, you know more in a burlesque format. It's also um, a a club that's sort of a hipster type club. You get a lot more couples there, many more uh, women patrons as a percentage of the audience than you would at a traditional strip club. So and and uh, there's no no lap dancing, none of the shenanigans that are uh, typically going to take place in the dozens of strip clubs that are in Las Vegas. So. Um, and I have talked to regulators about this, and they concede that um, there will be strip clubs soon um, in Las Vegas. And, and the big change isn't isn't the national economy that's forcing you know them to casinos to go get new money. It's really sort of a change in regulatory approach where regulators aren't saying you know lay, drawing lines in the sand, saying no, you can't do it. They're saying, hey, you guys do what you, what you want. Just don't break any state, local laws, or or embarrass the state and break the gaming regulations that prohibit giving the state a, a bad name. And and so you know the onus would be on casino operators if they choose to open up a strip club to make sure that the the no touch rules in county ordinance and city ordinance are are followed to make sure that the state law prohibiting prostitution and the solicitation for prostitution are followed and to make sure that um you know pornography and um you know other types of uh you know things that would embarrass the state aren't sold on site um and so um, those things, um, you know, in the past, the, the membership of the control board was a little more law enforcement oriented. It's a little more, um, the, the guys on the board now um, are a little more um, trusting of the casino business. They rely on the compliance committees that um, are responsible within each company for making sure that um, they comply with uh, state laws, local ordinances, and gaming rules. They're, and they, they trust them to, you know, they're sort of the first line of defense. And the, the regulators now, um, they will certainly make it clear to operators that they have to make sure that laws are followed um, and that the state's not embarrassed. But they are not going to... Um, call in operators and say, hey, we don't like what you're preparing to do, or they're not going to make them, um, you know, go through a licensing process to open a strip club. They're just going to make sure that the uh, that the uh, casinos um, stay with on the right side of the law. And so that's the big change. Um, and I, I think, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if you saw it within the next couple, next couple of years. Um, it may be soon, it may be real soon, but certainly within the next few years, um, you will see strip clubs, plural, in casinos in Las Vegas. So my, my follow-up is this. Which companies are going to be the first to introduce this product? I mean, I, for some, I just don't, can't imagine a strip club in the middle of uh, Encore. But, um, you know, uh, what do you guys think? I mean, are certain, are certain companies more likely to embrace this sort of entertainment if it was uh, available? Well, Hunter, if I could jump in for a second, I'd just like to say I'm still a little bit skeptical of this, just um, based on a couple of things. First of all, there's an article a little a couple of days ago that I talked about in my blog where Randy Sayer doesn't even want to give 
a restricted license to Girls of Glitter Gulch out there on Fremont Street. Um, and just because he said that, oh, the strip club industry is over, you know, overridden with uh, drugs and prostitutes and all that. And so I think there's a little bit of, you know, I think there's still a little bit of trepidation there. I probably don't have Jeff's sources with the control board, but just based on what I read and from what I know of uh, Mr. Sayer, he seems to be definitely the law enforcement guy there. Uh, second of all, I don't know. It seems like it's a it's a real stretch to get you know to get a casino involved in that kind of business. They're really opening up up a Pandora's box, and you know. And I'm not sure whether somebody's going to want to put their license on the line the first time some girl takes it a little bit over the line back in the VIP booth or whatever and touches some guy or vice versa, and then they get ripped with a license violation. I don't know. It seems like they have a pretty good deal now. And sure, they could make a couple of extra dollars, but you know, I don't know if they want to get in that business because it's not necessarily a clean business, especially with you know this kind of really – them really distancing – the gaming aspect from the vice aspect. And, you know, I think they've just done so much to try to promote the casinos as not really vice, but more as uh, fun and entertainment. I think maybe this is a step in the other direction. You know, David makes a couple of very good points. And I'll say, first of all, I, I definitely talked to Randy Sayre and talked to uh, other folks as well in the regulatory uh, apparatus of the state. And uh, clearly, they are not willing to accept strip clubs the way they operate now um, in casinos, and they're not even willing to grant new restricted gaming licenses, which means slot only, 15 slots or less, to strip clubs. Um, even though there are strip clubs that already have slots, um, a lot of those places opened as something other than a, a strip club and then later added stripping. There's a couple really old ones that... Um, got them, got those licenses as strip clubs, but um, you know the the way strip clubs are now, and I think, um, I mean, clearly, almost all of those, all of the Las Vegas strip clubs ignore um, local ordinances um, that pers that um, limit the amount of uh, physical contact that can take place between customers and dancers, um, and so those laws would have to be obeyed. Um, certainly, um, there would have to be exceptionally close oversight, both with management on the floor and with surveillance to make sure that rules are not being broken. Um, I think you can probably rule out closed-off VIP rooms like David just mentioned. Um, so on the one hand, um, you, you, you could say that, it, that these strip clubs, if they're called that, will not be strip clubs like Las Vegas customers are used to going to. And so there is a question about whether these would succeed, whether they really wouldn't be much more than a glorified um, burlesque place like operates now at Mandalay Bay, um, because they wouldn't have vigorous lap dances. They would not have um, probably VIP rooms. They certainly would have much closer oversight over employment, people who've had prostitution-related arrests or convictions and uh, um, drug-related convictions, you could almost certainly say, um, would not be hired. Um, so it's going to be, it will be difficult for the casinos to get into it. Um, but I, but um, so that's that's the one issue. Um, and you know, so that's that explains why they're so tough on strip clubs because that business thumbs its nose at the law and it does it every day. You any one of any one of the listeners to this podcast 
can you know can take a hundred bucks into a strip club and pretty easily have the law be violated um you know i mean because you know the just just in terms of the lap dances and et cetera um but I would say that um in terms of the casinos being willing to take the risk, that is a good question. I mean, whether a casino would, um, I know that the regulators I talk to are confident that it will happen. Um, my take on that is that there's ongoing discussions right now. Um, I can't say that um, for sure and certainly can't identify anyone, but but I would say, um, you know, that it wouldn't surprise me if, um any of the big operating companies. Um, certainly, um, MGM Mirage has proven its willingness um, to allow one of their um, less one of the um, companies that did um, that operated light now operates the bank in Bellagio. They had a um, promo that um, took place with a former strip club here, the Crazy Horse Two, um, and. You know, the, it's just, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me to see Harris. It wouldn't surprise me to see MGM Mirage. It wouldn't surprise me to see Wynn. I don't know about um, Sands. Um, I think George Maloof um, would not be far behind um, if it could be offered. Um, and uh, I think, you know, it wouldn't even surprise me to see some of the locals folks um, do it too if it was, if it proved to be successful. To me, I think the issue is whether these would even work. Are a bunch of guys, you know, going to a bachelor party or a, a, a couple of guys here, you know, on a sales reward trip, are they going to want to stay on site for some tame version of what goes on at a strip club now? Or are they going to want, you know, the, 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 uh, the real thing by comparison? I'm not sure that the strip club version in the casino would be that successful. Um, it is, you know, proximity would be an advantage, but the close scrutiny and, um, and you know, fewer activities would be a detriment. So it's hard to say. And, of course, you know, the strip club industry, I'm sure, would respond uh, with, you know, to try to try to uh, make that chasm as obvious as possible. To Absolutely. They're going to make clear that there is a difference. They can call themselves strip clubs, but, you know, we're not famous. We're not the famous Cheetahs, Olympic Garden, Crazy Horse 2, you know, uh, what's the, uh, the big one, Sapphire. Um, you know, they're not famous for nothing. Yeah. If, if I might, uh, two words, Pac-Man Jones. I mean, that's that's what you're opening the door to if you do this. Is, you know, who wants to run the risk of having, you know, another mink shooting on their property? And, you know, that kind of, that kind of negative association can take a long time to shake. You know, much has happened with MGM Grand and the... the uh, uh, the ear, the the riot that broke out after the uh, the Tyson Holyfield ear biting match. Uh, also, I mean, I think if anybody does do it, I would, I would, uh, you know, I'd put, uh, I'd, you know, I'd put my chips on on Maloof being the first one to to push that envelope. But uh, the the funny part of, I mean, this all kind of sprung out of Girls of Glitter Gulch not getting its slot license. And what I, I can't get my mind around, okay, you're sitting in a strip bar. There are girls up on the stage in a, 
advanced stage of nakedness, writhing around, shaking their uh, their naughty bits at you, and you you need to play slots. Or yeah, you're trying first. to decide whether you should keep the three to a royal flush or the two aces. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I mean, either the girls there must not be very you know very compelling. And that or, would probably be, tr- be true in the case of that particular bar. <laughs> Or else we're just so overstimulated as a society that we just, you know, we like you know, naked women. No, no, need slots, must have slots too. You know, those clubs, and I've talked to Pete Eliadis, who owns Olympic Garden, um, and he's he's fought um, not really strongly, but he's fought a couple times to keep his slots um, um, at at the bar there. But you know, for those guys, those guys make money. I mean, hand over fist in cash, um, and it's not like I mean the slot bar makes some money for a lot of businesses. It's their lifesaver. Believe me, for the strip clubs, it's just a bonus. It's you know, it's a way to make a little bit more. For the really successful strip clubs, slot revenue is a very small revenue item. Um, but yeah, do people play them? Sure. You know, are there moments? You know, the the people who are playing those machines, you know. They're multitasking. <laughs> they're they're keeping one eye on their one eye on the stage, one eye on their machine, you know. Um, and uh, I presume that that's it's not it's not that big of a deal to the club. But um, the the issue, you know, and, and and I doubt that gaming in a casino in a casino strip club. I doubt that they would have gaming in the same place. Um, they probably could, um, and maybe and maybe they would. But um, I would be surprised. Yeah. Well, interesting. We shall see. Um, to move to move on to a completely different topic. Um, this is uh, what I want to talk about next is the concept of sort of the quote unquote standard uh, Las Vegas resort recipe. Um, you know, in, through the '90s, well, you could I guess argue with the Mirage, and then through the '90s, there was a fairly uh, well-developed sort of standard set of amenities that you would put into your casino hotel on the Strip, uh, you know, maybe varying the levels of quality um, to attract a different audience. But, you know, you're, you're talking your steakhouse, your Italian place, your Chinese place, uh, a production show of some kind, um, that sort of thing, these sort of standard ingredients. And to some degree, even a standard uh, form factor, the uh, the tri tri wing tower, obviously very popular for many years. When City Center was announced, we had several ex- gaming executives say <laughs> things along the lines of, you know, we'll, we're never going to see a a resort a la Bellagio or a, or a, even a Monte Carlo built again. Uh, I think you know they've cited several reasons from land cost and, and expense, um, and you know. At that time, they were looking at uh, people fighting to come to Las Vegas, slightly different than it is today. But, um, you know, we see that City Center was slow to be financed, even though they they are locking that up. The Cosmo went into default, Echelon delayed. Is it possible that with changing market conditions, which, of course, are always changing, um, that we may see the development of mid-range – I'm going to say traditional, if that means anything, um, Las Vegas Strip Resorts return. I mean, you look at Monte Carlo, and I believe in terms of invested capital, it's got some of the best return um, because it was so inexpensive to build, and it has been at least a reasonable performer for so long. Um, You know, a lot of the companies that own the land didn't pay 
what Elad paid for the frontier land per acre. They, do they have the luxury of considering uh, a mid-range um, classic resort, or are, are these things truly gone? Well, I think we'll know when, after Fountain Blue opens up, I think we'll see what happens with them. And if that's successful, a lot of people are going to try to go that way. I know it's not necessarily mid-range, but, you know, I think that's definitely closer to the traditional casino than Echelon or City Center. So I think that the success of that is going to say a lot. You know, if it is successful, maybe City Center North gets broken up into a couple of different parcels. Yeah, I mean, there definitely is opportunity to do that, I guess. I mean, I know that from my conversations with, with, cust- with customers, tourists, that um, some some are excited about the resorts that are coming online, but the the common thread is that people feel like they've sort of been left behind in terms of what is going to be uh, available to them. They don't feel like the new product is targeted at quote unquote normal average people, um, since a lot of it was very targeted on high end customers. I mean, is there a danger in only targeting those? So, I mean, you know, we've talked about this in other forms in the past, as far as sort of the sliding scale of of the resort hierarchy, but you know, is the, the part of the fun of Las Vegas is a perception that there's always something new and interesting. And if they're pricing everybody out of this market, um, you know, it, does that make, is, does that reduce sort of the fun factor, the uh, the desire to go check out what's out there? I think a big part of the 90s expansion was the fact that there was so much stuff out there that was free, and you also had to carry over from the old places. So you know, you could go to the Sahara and get there you know, questionable quality buffet for six ninety nine. Um, if you're really hungry. And you could catch, you know, the free pirate show and the the volcano and all that stuff. And I think now that a lot of that stuff is kind of becoming privatized and it's moving inside the casino, I think it's definitely not there's not as much fun ready to be had there if you're not gonna be paying for it. I think that um you know, we don't need to wring our hands too much yet um, because there will still be the fountains of Bellagio. They'll still have the new and improved, supposedly, Mirage Volcano. Um, there is still a, a form of pirate show. There are other there are other kinds of free activities that people can do. And, and some folks do like to, you know, go walk in and check out the conservatory at Bellagio, walk through uh, – you know, I presume that there will be uh, similar type things at, at Encore. Um, folks do like to check out when. I mean, it may not be, you know, there may not be a, as many grandiose um, things like the fountains. But, you know, there's there's still the tiger or the, the lions at MGM Grand. So there's stuff for people to see. And we won't, it's not like we're getting rid of the MGM Grand, Excalibur, Luxor, Monte Carlo, New York, New York, Paris, you know, maybe you know, maybe someday you know, Bally's will go. Um, certainly, Bills. Um, it's unlikely the Flamingo would go, but um, Harris is a possibility. Certainly, Imperial Palace. You know, some of those will go. Um, will they be replaced by um, mid mid level properties? You know, that are equivalent in price to the ones they replace? Probably not. I think that land value thing does make it difficult for properties to pencil out. So those owners are going to, those developers are going to have to come up with a way to, you know, inspire um, more affluent customers, um, just like the rest of the entire um, travel industry, not just in Las Vegas. Um, people are really trying to capture the uh, the most affluent segment of the market, but it won't leave the middle market behind. Um, the the lower end of the market may get pushed out to 
um, the suburbs to locals to to um, to downtown to Laughlin to Prim Jean um, or you know other markets. But um, you know the, the on a I think that certainly the middle market now um, will long be able to afford Las Vegas. Maybe not on a holiday weekend. But um, it's not going to remain, you know, it's not going to suddenly turn out of reach because a couple more very high-end resorts open up. You know, I I definitely agree with everything you're saying. The one thing that does sometimes, well, the thing that I do here is the sort of the perception. It's it may not be the reality, but there's this perception that there's that the stuff coming online is only targeting very high-end customers. Well, it is. I mean, no one's building a stratosphere. No one's building, you know, no one's building, you know, a property where they say, you know, man, we want to get those $70 a night tourists. No one's doing that right now. And it may be that no one's going to do it for a while, but that doesn't mean that those rooms won't be available. And typically, um, Las Vegas customers haven't, or Las Vegas visitors haven't been, you know, it's not that they want, they necessarily have to stay at this, at, at the, at the new place. You know, when Wynn opened up in 2005, it was only a couple thousand rooms, uh, you know, 2,700 rooms. It's not yet yet it spurred a dramatic increase in visitation. And those folks, you know, yeah, they came and checked out when, but they stayed someplace else, almost all of them. Um, and so people will be inspired to come and check out City Center and Fontainebleau and Encore, I believe. But, you know, not many, you know, some of them will be priced out of those properties. But, you know, there's there's still at the lowest end, there's still Sahara and Circus Circus and Riviera and Tropicana and Hooters and all the downtown and locals places. And then there's mid-level properties above those that are still relatively affordable compared to hotels in most American cities. Um, and, you know, most American cities don't have all the other kinds of entertainment and uh, and dining that we can put into such a small location. Um, and I think the same will be true for the convention business. Um, you know, we put a lot together in a very small space, making it convenient for convention goers. Um, I think that, the, you know, just the top end will be better, um, better able to handle big numbers of affluent guests. So, you know, um, I don't, you know, it's not like 90% or 60% of the market is going to be, you know, $300, $400 hotel rooms. I mean, we're, we have, we're far from that point yet. Well, are there big numbers of of affluent guests out there? Well, they believe there are. Um, the, the 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 casino operators believe there are, they are, there are. Now, during this economic downturn, will there be as many as they had hoped? You know, I don't know. I mean, when you look at you know look at a market like um, like Hawaii, you look at um, you know there there's a pretty the the four and five star hotels there have a pretty decent share of the market um you know it's it, i think you know we're talking about right now in las vegas the the, the upper four and five star properties if you if you include you know venetian and palazzo bellagio and win in that group um and then you say you're going to add aria you're adding encore and you're adding, let's say, the main hotel at Fontainebleau, and eventually, the main hotel at Echelon. You know, it's not that. I mean, it's 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 a substantial increase over what we had in 1997, but it's it's not that. 
that big, and there's been a there's been a big, uh, pretty much a sea change in the perspective of the most affluent kind of travelers about Las Vegas since then. Um, you know, Las Vegas was thought of as pretty kitschy and you know sort of gross by a lot of very affluent travelers. You know, only uh, only ten years ago. Um, but after Bellagio opened, I think there's been sort of a, you know, a change in perspective. And, you know, there's plenty of those people who have yet to learn about that, who have yet to come here. And, uh, you know, Bill Boyd and Steve Wynn and Terry Lanny um, um, and Sheldon Adelson, they're all confident that um, they're going to be able to capitalize on that. Well, I mean, if I were, if I had business that, that, Took, was taking into town the the weekend of the or um, the Madonna concert, and I saw that you know if I was, didn't want to pay more than one hundred twenty five dollars a night, and that meant staying at Circus Circus, I'd be thinking, screw this, because you know I, I mean what I'm what I'm part of what I'm getting from what you laid out there is it's a pretty bleak prognosis for people who aren't willing to pay. Uh, you know, hundreds of dollars a night for a hotel room. I mean, if if the, you know, if if you know the, the properties you're mentioning, you know, places like the Tropicana, you know, it's if if the you know if the if the uh, uh, mid market to bargain oriented customer is going to have to resign themselves to staying at third tier properties, that's just. Uh, I mean, I as I'm wearing my consumer hat right now and not. And suddenly finding the appeal of Las Vegas to be considerably less. You know, uh, but before before you, I just also wanted to throw in that that I think in terms of land values and and the effect they've had, I think there's going to have to be a, a correction in that. In uh, as far as uh, if if we're going to see, you know, uh, uh, you know, non you know non meta resort uh, properties. We had two or three bidders, particular you know, Elad being by far the worst culprit. Who just you know they they drove prices so far above what what the average had been that now the the point of entry is is prohibitive. I mean, when you know when the uh, I don't see if Elad doesn't go through with that plaza. Project. How are they going to get their forty-three million an acre back out of that? Because it's just it's it's uh, you know it, I mean overnight they you know the asking price went from the the what was perceived as the value of an acre on the strip, which was at the time was seen as being thirty million dollars, and even that was was driven was inflated by the recklessness of Columbia Sussex. Then you have Elad tacking on almost fifty percent more. I mean, it's just it got crazy, um, and then you know you've got uh, and you know and people have they in response they're also I think in, in terms of economic reality that they're that they you know they they look at the value of the land and I and maybe it it drives them to over planning. I'm convinced that if that if Boyd had not elected to try and build. All of of uh, of echelon in one great gulp, and certainly if their if their partners had been a little more solvent, uh, that that they'd be doing fine at this point. You know, if they had just if they just concentrated on the the core components, 
Um, we, you know, I don't think, you know, I think that the construction cranes and the bulldozers and the, you know, would be, would be merrily, uh, grinding away even as we speak. David, um, one thing, and I think you, you bring up an important point from the consumer's perspective and, and your employer, Las Vegas advisor, Chuck, I think a lot of what you, what your site does, um, you know, you're focusing on what, what people want when they come to Las Vegas. And I think there's still enough choice for folks. Um, yeah, if they want to stay on a Friday or Saturday night, maybe they will have to stay at the downtown or at the stratosphere, or the trop, the Riviera, the, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, and some of the other low end properties. But, you know, there are ways for people to work around that, that you can come on a Sunday through Thursday night. You can come in the summer when prices aren't as high. You can come during the time between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, you can, you know, and, and folks can also, you know, they can, they can stay um, for, they can stay at a mid-level property and try and get, you know, try and get a really good deal. Um, they can certainly stay at a lower end property, but go out for one great meal or go out to a good club someplace. People are pretty smart as consumers. They take advantages of websites like both of yours. Um, I think that you know, and, and, and the crafty consumers, the smart folks, can figure out a way to make to make it work. I don't think those people are priced out of the property market yet. If you if you all remember, um, a year ago or a little less than a year ago, we were had the highest prices of all time, and and you go to you know, it's not like the people stuck in the stat, you know, staying in the stratosphere, staying in, in the Sahara, the Imperial Palace. Those folks aren't like if you went in there on a Friday and Saturday night. Those people are having a great time. There are people in there partying, drinking, going to their clubs, going to you know, going out to dinner, and they're having you know the weekend of their lives. Now maybe it, it's people in their twenties, people who haven't reached their you know peak earning years. You see a lot of young folks, a lot of you know foreigners staying in those properties, but they're having a good time. And it's not, you know, I just, I, I, I know that people like to think, oh, I should be able to afford, you know, Bellagio on a hundred bucks a night, and maybe now you can get it with the economy the way it is. But I think that in general, you know, the, there are three, three tiers of properties at least, and you know, people figure out a way to make their own money spread as far as it can, and I think they do a pretty good job of it. I don't, I'm yet to be worried um, that that the that people are being priced out of Las Vegas. This most recent downturn has helped. People who couldn't afford to come here on a weekend a year ago certainly can come now. So I think uh you know I think we we probably don't want to overstate our worries about people being displaced from uh, affording a Las Vegas trip. Well, uh, uh, sorry. Uh, speaking of uh, spreading your money as far as it can uh, I, I think the East Side Cannery kind of kind of adds an interesting kind of perspective to this to me. Uh, you know, it's kind of close. It's a brand new, spiffy-looking kind of joint. Grant, I haven't had the the pleasure to show up there quite yet. But uh, you know, from from what they're offering, you know, the room rates are like a hundred and something, hundred twenty dollars a night uh, for the weekend that that. Uh, that uh, David McKee had mentioned, the uh, November 7th weekend. Uh, you know, other things in town that weekend, you know, uh, Riviera is 90 bucks a night. Circuit is 130 
you know, you're going to pay 130 for Circus Circus versus a brand new East Side Cannery. You know, it's it, it's it's making folks like me who are pretty experienced with traveling places to consider staying at a joint pretty far off the street strip. You know, hey, you know, it's a pretty nice place. So, uh, what I, what I, the kind of the point of that I hope I eventually get to is uh, what would be the possibility of building a smaller, a little bit less involved boutique-ish, but maybe not expensive in terms of boutique. East Side Cannery kind of property in a small little spot somewhere on the strip that would charge only a hundred bucks a night, but it would still be brand new and clean and nice and, and that kind of thing. Is, is the real estate prices, as we had uh, pretty thoroughly discussed, completely prohibit the fact of that ever happening? Because I see, you know, a lot of the readers to Vegas tripping. A lot of people talk about how they'd love to have a nice smaller boutique, but not ridiculously expensive place, you know, something more intimate, but it's still nice. Like maybe if the MGM uh, MGM Grant's West Wing was its own hotel, that kind of vibe? Uh, something I mean, like that. Like, I'm almost <laughs> thinking, you know, when I, I was at Treasure Island a, a few months ago, and I was speaking with their uh, VP of hotel operations, uh, Catherine Seifert, and she described Treasure Island to me as a boutique, boutique mega resort you can wrap your arms around. And it, it like like these lights went on in my head. I'm like, God, you know, I hadn't really even thought of that. You could walk from one side of the place to the other side of the place in minutes. You know, to get from the parking garage to check in, you know, that's really like a like a hundred paces tops. You know, and I think people are yearning instead of these, these monolithic kind of city centers and whatnot. It's like a, a small, nice place. It won't cost eight billion dollars to build. Is there any chance that something like that would ever I don't think I don't think so, Chuck. Because even the Sahara, Nazarian, even his plan calls for more than a hundred bucks. Wasn't it two and a quarter or two hundred bucks a night? If you guys probably remember better than I do, but two hundred a night. Yeah, and 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 you know that's about as low budget of a plan as you could have. You did want to add a new tower, and um, but it seems like. Um, the cost of land, if it remains close to um, what um, Columbia Sussex and certainly close to what um, Elad paid, it does. It is cost prohibitive um, at a hundred a night. Now, then again, you got to remember, for spending two hundred fifty million bucks way on the other side of town, um, you know they want a hundred and twenty at the cannery. I mean, so the idea that you have a place for a hundred on the strip. Um, is just unlikely. Um, you know, those places that are charging 100 on the Strip, you know, let's say it's the Riviera or Stratosphere or Tropicana, those places are, uh, you know, long paid for, maybe borrowed against, but certainly long paid for um, at much, much, much lower land prices and uh, cost of money and everything else. I mean, Boyd has some some land that would fall into that category. I mean, if you just sort of you know, engage. You know, if you were to to uh, uh, if they were to take some of that southern acreage, which which they bought more recently, but at the same time, if they were to treat that as as being, you know, as uh, regard that in the same way that they do the dirt under where the stardust was, they you know they could they could probably afford to put up a couple of of nice, you know. Uh, 
cannery east side sort of properties, but I don't think that's Which land are you talking anymore. about? David Oh, it's towards the, the where the Morgans properties were going to go in. Oh, the north side, the westward ho side. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that, that property, yeah, they, they they had reserved that for future development. Um, you know, yeah, I think you're right about that. On the other hand, do you want to, you know, does it does it degre- does it detract from, you know, the value of your, you know, um, five diamond property putting up a three diamond property right next to it? Um, maybe it's just better to have it as space held in reserve for future expansion. But you're right, they could do it. I don't know that they would. Yeah, I mean, they're the only ones I figure could have could afford to do that because they've been they've got so much land that they've that's been you know that's that's paid for itself you know several times over but you know as far will somebody do it on the on the strip i doubt it you know it's sort of similar to a debate that i've had with the fertina brothers when they bought george maloof's um, fiesta and then converted the reserve which they had bought to a fiesta and i challenged them i said you'll never build another fiesta they kept you know they said oh yeah we're going to do it um, it's our mid-price brand. We want to be able to build a hundred, two hundred million dollar casino. But when push comes to shove, they can't bring themselves to do it because right. they pay for the land and higher price, better quality places, get more business, draw people from further afield, and so they keep building. You know, they go out to Aliante, they build a build a station. Red Rock, obviously, they build a station. They buy these low end places and call them wildfires, but you know they have yet, and they say they will. So you know, I'm still waiting, but uh, you know, I'm I'm very skeptical, and I think it's very tough for these casino companies that have such valuable land. Um, I think they think their best way to get a return is to build something very, very nice. Um, the, one of the, the problem for those folks, from a competitive standpoint, is they have to compete with people who know how to, who already are proven winners at the top of the market. Um, Steve Wynn, and to a lesser extent Baldwin and uh, Sheldon Adelson. Well, and I don't think Station gets. I don't think they're as dollar efficient as some of their competitors either. But let's not get into that. <laughs> well, that's a, all a very interesting discussion. We're at the one hour mark. I'm going to try and squeeze in one last thing if you guys are game, uh, and it may not take very long. And, and that's just a quick update on City Center, because in the last uh, week or so, we've had two announcements that are um, shedding a fair amount of light on uh, on what's going to going into Aria, the uh, main hotel there. Um, we saw an article in the LA Times travel section about some of the technology that's going to be in the guest rooms that includes uh, all kinds of high-tech features like automatically opening the window shades when you walk in the room and all that kind of that kind of thing. A lot of automation um, and personalization features that we haven't really seen in other hotels. They're taking advantage of that technology. And then today, the press release about their restaurant offerings. Um, they announced. The, uh, I think the majority of the restaurants that are going, to, going into the hotel, and there are quite a few familiar names in the list. It um, looks like anybody that did well at uh, Bellagio got a shot at a restaurant, and uh, a couple others sprinkled in. Um, my question is this. With all of that stuff um, announced about the resort, does, does it change anyone's perception, or is anyone more or less excited about, about the hotel knowing, knowing what they know now? I, I'll admit myself the technology thing in the rooms, I think, is interesting uh, as long as it works. Um, you know, you don't want something that's going to overwhelm grandma. But um, that that makes me kind of curious. But I'll, I'll say with the restaurants, while there may be 
some interesting sounding ideas in there. It was exactly what I expected them to do. I mean, it's it's it, the trajectory of their restaurants is exactly what you would expect, knowing how MGM Mirage seems to like to find a concept and then place it in as many places as possible, and then uh, you know get the light group to run it for them. <laughs> so, what do you guys think? Oh, um, I did not see an upscale burger place in there. A little bit surprising. <laughs> it's true. No, no city center burger. Yeah. I mean, I think that the you know, the celebrity chef phenomenon has, you know, I think one of you know, I think that when Las Vegas was, I mean, I think they were definitely moving in the right direction as far as as getting away from the rent-a-chef and towards having something that was created specifically for your property. I mean, when you've got umpteen incarnations of, you know, or, or iterations of Jean-Georges von Gerichten or, you know, what the, I'm not sure I'm saying his name right, but, you know, all these guys who've got, you know, they've already got four or five places on the strip. I don't think, I mean, I don't think you have to be a, a, a gourmet to know that you're, you know, you're getting blurrier and blurrier Xerox reproductions of Michael Mina or, or whomever, um, as they spread themselves thinner. And as far as, I think Chuck put it really well on his, his website, you know, that those, those rooms at the, that, that room preview at, uh, that appeared in the LA Times, you just kind of look like it, look at it and like, is that it? It just it was a very blah looking room. I I was expecting something with much more of a wow factor. I'm I mean I just color me disappointed. They're pretty small too. They're only five hundred and thirty square feet. <sighs> yeah, I think the as to me, um I, I think it was to be expected the restaurant stuff. The room thing wasn't you know, I, I think they looked they looked okay, certainly not as big as the rooms at, you know, Palazzo or Encore. But um, the wow factor for that property, I think, is more of a – it's going to come from the sense of of, of it when it's all built out um, between, you know, the the Harmon flyover. Um, the, the, there are some incredible um, effects plans, special effects, um, cool – um, cool things, you know, not quite on the scale of the Bellagio fountains, but I think they will be attention grabbers um, and, uh, you know, big attention grabbers. I think that the uh, the Crystals shopping area, um, just, just from the look of it already, um, it's quite spectacular. Um, I think that, you know, I think we shouldn't undersell the uh, the impact of so much architecture. You know, I've I've read some people, and it may be on some of your blogs, some people calling it, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, office architecture, um, office tower architecture. Um, You know, I think when you consider the mix, including the retail, including the hotel casino, um, including its proximity to all these wildly colored, 
marquees and other casinos on the strip. I don't think anybody's going to be mistaking it for, uh, you know, what did somebody call Win Las Vegas when it opened? A uh, uh, 1970s Houston office bu- building. Right. Um, you know, anybody who looks at Win next to Encore now, next to Palazzo, I don't think people think that now. I think that, you know, there's sort of a snootiness about some architectural critics that don't really square, that doesn't square with how the general public feels. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking that City Center is going to be dramatically impressive, um, and, and, and I can't wait for it to open. I, I, I think it's going to be, uh, you know, something that we'll all remember as being a uh, signal of, a, a, uh, of dramatic importance in the uh, history of the evolution of the Strip. Well, there you go. Maybe we'll leave it at that. That seems like a good place to drop it off for the day. Hopefully we can pull a couple of details about this light show you're talking about next time we talk. I've heard a couple rumors and that they're sort of unconfirmed, but that wet that wet design, who's uh, you know MGM Mirage's sort of special effects company these days with the fountains and the volcano and everything, that they uh, were working on um, you know something for the for the entryway at City Center that was that was going to include uh, like rapidly freezing ice. That is fire. correct. And some pretty impressive sounding new technology that you know when they did the fountains, they basically had to invent a lot of that technology for the for the show and it sounds like they're doing something like that again that they are pushing the envelope and those guys are pretty amazing with what they're able to do so if they've got something that's going to be uh going to be featured in the resort like that i i that's something that I will definitely want to see no argument yep. there, yep, yeah, all right, gentlemen, that's it for today. Thank you, everyone, for being here. I'm going to go around the table so you can tell people where they can find you. Um, Jeff Simpson, where can people track you down? InBusinessLasVegas.com. Dave Schwartz, how about you? People can find me, as always, at DieIsCast.com. All right. Chuck Monster, where can people find you? Uh, VegasTripping.com. Excellent. And David McKee, how about you? LasVegasAdvisor.com. Excellent. You can find me at RateVegas.com. And thanks to everyone. Have a fantastic weekend.